Nations, empires, and dynasties have risen up in power at various periods throughout history. And at the pinnacle of that power, who could stop them? The devastation that has eventually fallen upon so many of them tragically illustrates that the power built on foundations of wickedness and corruption is a false, unstable power, and those who build on it will assuredly fall. What a wonder it is then to witness that when our lives crack and crumble, when our hearts are broken, we can be restored through the true power of He who is mighty to save. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I think we like stories with evil armies and evil empires because we tend to gravitate towards goodness. And in order for us to really contrast goodness, we need to have bad. So there's, there's, in order for us to really do really good, we need to fight the really bad. And I think it's necessary that the, the two opposites kind of go, go head in hand. As little kids, you know, our parents read us books and stories, and we always have, you know, the bad guys and the good guys, and at the end, we always want to be the good guys. So I feel like those stories um, bring the best of us and helps us to become that good guy. We're all given different talents, different backgrounds, different looks and everything. And if all of us together used it for the betterment of the world, uh, it would be a better world, a different world for sure. Welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us today. The discussion topics for today's episode come from our studies in Isaiah chapters 13 through 35. And the two topics we're going to discuss are the wicked kingdoms of this world and their downfall. And the second topic is the Lord can restore things that are lost or broken. And to help us with our discussion, we want to welcome one of our scholars, Luke Drake. Welcome, Luke. Hi, thank you. Luke is the coordinator of the Institute of Religion for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Tampa, Florida. And uh, sitting next to Luke, we have Sean Hopkins. Welcome, Sean. Hello. Good to be here. Uh, Sean is the chair of ancient scripture at BYU. And Sean, you may recognize Sean from a previous episode as one of our scholars. He did such a good job. We just <laughs> had to have you back as a guest, Sean. They edited out anything <laughs> that didn't work and we're, we're back to go. Well, as you guys can see, we're going to have some fun and we're going to learn a lot about Isaiah. So uh, as we dive into this first topic, Luke, do you want to give us just a little bit of a historical context? Sure. Historically, we are in an age of empires, rising empires. The first 39 chapters are pretty heavy in judgment, and it's in the last chapters, those last 26, where there's a lot of comfort and a lot of hope. And some of the passages that early Christians and the Doctrine and Covenants that we today celebrate from Isaiah come from those latter chapters. And we're still, uh, we're in the judgment stuff. And so sometimes it can be a little rough when you're reading certain things uh, in here. Um, but my takeaway as I was preparing for this is that even though it is heavy in judgment, I loved this week's readings because it still is really full of hope. So Isaiah gives a lot of descriptions about these, these kingdoms and, and their, their wickedness. Uh, do we have any specifics? Like, what is he talking about to help us better understand what he's dealing with? If you look on a map and you look at the Assyrian Empire, it's like the United States and like Judea is like New Jersey. I mean, this is like this <laughs> monstrous empire. This is a war machine. They are, I'm not gonna say terrible things on this beautiful show, but they do terrible things to hundreds of thousands of people. That's how they conquered. They terrified the world. They said, you play ball with us 
or we will make you suffer in ways that you and your children can't even imagine. If you go to chapter 14, look at verse four, um, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how hath the oppressor ceased, right? So how are these uh, nations being described? These are, these are oppressive regimes. Look at verse six. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, is continually beating people. He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. Right? This is violence, right? He's talking about this is, a, these are, this is a very violent time. These are violent groups of people. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the nations which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, right? So he's pointing to ancient kings who are viewing themselves as gods, right? Who are setting themselves up, building towers, monuments to themselves. So it's in that context that Isaiah is saying, it's not gonna last, right? This is audacious. You're talking to the world's biggest empires, right? You're going down. Bible scholars often call this Isaiah's taunt song mm. against Babylon, where Isaiah's being a little feisty here. He's saying, this is what's going to happen, and Babylon probably shrugging its shoulders, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and then Isaiah is right, because Isaiah's a prophet of God. These things will be reversed. Pride will be brought down, and things that were prideful and seemed to prosper in their pride, there'll come a time when truth wins out, mm. and that's what Isaiah's saying. And the humble, in their honesty, will be elevated. Isaiah's promising there'll come a time when you'll look back and say, was this the kingdom that made the earth tremble? We don't even know who the Assyrians are, right? We don't even know who the Babylonians are. They're gone. The kingdom that once terrified the world is now dust, mm. memory. So Isaiah's trying to talk to us about things that won't last. So what are some of the things that you are trying to build your foundation upon that are going to, that are built to last through the eternities. Laurie, please. I was actually thinking about um, how is my relationship with my Heavenly Father? I really focused on that and I really did dive into the scriptures and it was really hard though to relate to ancient scriptures and I was trying to find a way to also teach my children but then how do we have our youth relate? How can they dive in? Because sometimes it's just like, I mean, even for me, I mean, I'm not a youth, but I mean, it's still over my head. And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to get them excited about it because they're just kind of like, what? This happened so many years, you know, so many years ago. How can they relate to what's happening here? I would love some tips. You guys are the experts on this or something. <laughs> no, I, see, I, I love where she's going with this though, because there are so many different voices and, and kingdoms mm -hmm. that are out there. They're trying to pull away uh, the attention or the focus from our kids. So what are some helpful tips and things we can do to help them build that foundation? I actually think the themes of Isaiah can speak directly to youth. Awesome. And like people in high school in particular, for me, high school is an evil regime. Like I, high school is hard for me. I struggled. I needed that light at the end of the tunnel knowing that I was going to you know, eventually, it was, it was hard for me. I do think that there are themes in Isaiah and it's not just high school. Death of a loved one, mental illness, um, uh, watching a family member suffer. I think it's all there in Isaiah. I think one challenge is the language. Uh, not just the fact that he is a Hebrew uh, uh, writing an elite Hebrew poetry that's been, but it's also been translated 
you know, this is a, a 17, early 17th century translation that we tend to read and which we should continue to read in our church meetings, right? But in individual devotional reading, we should bring in as many other resources as will bless us. So I, to those students, I would say, we need to get you a second translation, allowing the student to hear um, Isaiah in language that they can understand. I think that can go a long way because then you're able to draw out principles and doctrines very quickly because you're not wrestling with an archaic, you know, 17th century word. You know what he's saying and now it's, okay, so what's the principle here? How does this relate to the fact that I'm losing my mom? Or how does this relate to the fact that I am lonely every day at school? Just to show that uh, you're not the only one who feels this way, we had a really good question coming from one of our viewers. And uh, Sean, I'd love to get your response to it. Hi, I'm Barbara Kramer and I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada. I was thinking about Isaiah. Just like many prophets of old, he bravely stood up to the wickedness of many nations. I wonder how similar it must have been to the wickedness in the world today. How can I, as a parent, prepare my children to have the same courage as Isaiah? How can they become the hope of this latter-day world? Wow, that was a really profoundly put question. <laughs> I loved that. Often as Latter-day Saints, we sort of seem to raise nice people, and we want to. We want to raise people who are kind and be people who are kind. We also want to be people who are strong, right? Mm -hmm. Who recognize what's right and can stand up for what's right. But, but the mercy and the compassion after a long day of high school, it's been a few years since I've been there, uh, longer than uh, it has been for Luke, but I remember as well. And, and you've got these go-to places that can, that can give hope. And the chapter headings can point us to sort of this top level, come follow me manual, can point us there, but then to keep studying. But we get stuck sort of doing the same thing over and over again and, and looking for meaning. And let's just, let's keep studying, let's keep exploring. I continue, Luke and Ben, I'm sure this is true for you, I continue to learn more and more and be more excited about Isaiah. But th these messages of hope to find them so we can point our children to them, so we can point those, our ourselves to them in times of need. Here's just an example from our chapters, uh, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And think of that image of God's all-powerful hands that created the universe and all things we see and know, grasping a face gently and wiping tears away, lovingly wiping tears. This is, this is poignant, it's beautiful. And, and at the moment when I'm suffering or when someone I love is suffering, to picture the all-powerful God wiping tears from it, just so gently wiping those tears away. And verse nine, and it shall be said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. It was deeply important to an ancient world that was often in pain and Isaiah's message is so powerful today, and, and I hope that's at least a partial response to this beautifully worded question. This is a true message of hope. This is saying, for as awful as sometimes life can be, as cancer can be, or graduate school, or uh, a more, pandemic, a pandemic, Isaiah's offering hope, saying, it's not gonna last. God is with us, Emmanuel. God will be with us. And he can overcome even these empires that are so large that the world's never seen them before, like Assyria. So 
I think it's important that we understand that we are, as we're trying to apply these chapters, we're in no way trying to get specific and assign, well, this is the modern day Assyria, this group or this organization or this country. We're not saying that. We're trying to look at the principle of there's a lot of wickedness that is out there, mm-hmm. but what matters is those, the foundation upon which they are built, they're not gonna last. Well, and I, I would just add, I love that, and I think that's so true. And one of the things that's valuable about Isaiah's worldview that's different than ours, we like to say, well, God, God didn't do any of this. You know, this is just natural causes. And yet, there is some real power and hope in Isaiah showing us, but God is in control. Mm-hmm. And, and that gives hope, that it, he has power, he's a just God and a merciful God, and you get that beautifully, both of those things through Isaiah, and this is going to work out. But to apply those things, and, and to be careful about uh, over-applying in, in oddly specific ways where Isaiah would be like, no, I wasn't saying that, you know? Yeah. But there are principles here that are, are very powerful and applicable to us, as Luke is saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who is included in the kingdom of God? Does it expand beyond our specific religion? Well, I think there's a couple of things I might say about that. It might be helpful to recognize, particularly Isaiah 24 through 27 is what Bible studies people might call apocalyptic literature, right? And and you get this very strong vision of good versus evil, but that good should be broadly understood as those who love God, those who are tender-hearted, those who are just and upright and moral to the best of their ability, all of us having weaknesses. God has a plan for each and every single one of his children. And that doesn't mean just my little community in Orem, Utah. God has a plan for whatever home uh, environment, you know, uh, around the world that may exist. And this really reverses the principles Mm -hmm. that earthly kingdoms are built on. Mm -hmm. This is God's kingdom. These things are gonna be done away and look what God is going to build. And it's exciting. You you have these beautiful chapters, I think it's like 24 through 27, and Isaiah has this vision, and it's kind of this end world vision. Mm -hmm. And it's really beautiful. And it actually starts off with a meal, somewhere in there it's like a meal. Right there, that should give us some insight into like what it's like to be an ancient person where most people don't have enough food. And so the starting point is, how about a meal for everyone? And he says, all nations, right? So here it's kind of beautiful because he's not even just saying, and it's just for Israel, right? He's saying, all peoples are gonna to come together in one meal and we're all gonna to eat together and God is gonna wipe away all tears. There will be no poor, right? There will be, there's food for everyone. Thank you so much. There's a lot more to cover. You know, this is Isaiah. And so we're gonna to get to a lot of these topics uh, again as we uh, go to footnotes. Uh, but this has been a great first topic the wicked kingdoms of this world and their downfall. My wife and I were trying to have kids. We went through a lot of procedures and, and, and processes to, to get, be able to get pregnant. And uh, we found out uh, through the middle of the, the pregnancy that one of the twins wasn't viable. And uh, we unfortunately lost uh, that child and we felt completely broken. When we go through hard things for a very long time or repeatedly, um, we can maybe look at our world a little differently. We can maybe have less hope in general or think that things aren't going to work out for us. If it wasn't for the gospel and to the belief that we have that we would be one day um, made whole again, um, I don't know how we would have made it, but we did make it and we were blessed with another child. 
eventually uh, that came without any uh, procedures or anything. The Lord has spoken to me the way He speaks to all of us through the scriptures and in hymns and has shown me that there is always cause for hope and that um, that the Lord turns all adversity to our good. So our second topic is the Lord can restore things that are lost or broken. Luke, do you want to give us a little context as we transition from destruction yeah. to fixing things? <laughs> yeah, but we're now getting to some of these chapters where hope really does abound. You get these songs of hope, images of hope um, that I think can be incredibly applicable, that are worth memorizing, that can be really beautiful in our discipleship. I love that. And, and there is this consistent theme throughout Isaiah that God will come to protect the innocent mm -hmm. uh, and the downtrodden. And that should be a meaningful theme for us. God cares about those who uh, are powerless. And even though in mortality, that can't always be perfectly seen, he is promising there is justice. We want mercy so often, and, and I want mercy. And yet, uh, when we when the systems of the world, you might say, or when, when I damage another, he cares about what's right. And we don't want a God that doesn't care about what's right. Uh, there's this great American poet, poet named Andrew Hudgens who has this poem called Christ as Gardener. It imagines Christ working in a garden and he's working with all these different types of flowers and his hands are dirty and he's picking weeds, and, but he's caring for each one of them according to each plant's individual needs. And it, it, it describes Christ's role in our lives as just very highly individualized and it's messy and it's dirty, but he cares for the plants. He loves the plants and he knows what each one of them needs. We have a comment back here. I love how you were talking about the planting of us and tending to us and making sure that we get our individual needs. Mm. During hard times, it's hard to be rooted and gardening can really help to have them be stronger and grow spiritually and physically. Lucas, um, how do you feel like Jesus Christ helps you to be stronger and more rooted? He helps me stay away from temptation and he reminds me to do things that help me throughout my day. Lucas, how old are you? 11. 11 years old. Wow, good job, Dad. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> that kind of goes back to this idea of, man, there's your hope. Mm -hmm. To see somebody that young, to be able to make those sort of connections and, and build that, that relationship. Can I come to you, Dad? Is that okay? Yes. Um, what are some of the things that you have done to help instill uh, some of these values that your son at such a young age has? I'd have to say that he actually has been like that. He just uh, came that way. He was, he's, he's always been very drawn and very mm -hmm. sensitive to those things, which is great. So I'm not going to take credit for that. But, uh, but one thing that we were able to be consistent for his whole life is that we do family prayer at night before bed. And it's a little thing, but I think the consistency of doing it every day, I think, has made a difference. I, I would probably be better if you had done it in the morning, right? To start the day with a prayer. <laughs> but, you know, I still have a few minutes before I'm totally out. I'm going to give those to you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's a great example that really does lead to this idea of hope. Um, I'd love to read um, 
Isaiah 35, just okay. this song of hope. Um, the, the question I'm, always, I'm asking myself when I read something like this is, how do we maintain hope even when life seems hopeless, financially hopeless, uh, uh, physically hopeless, you know, our relationships, whatever it may be? How do we keep this song in our hearts? So uh, it says, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. It's almost like this song is saying you've got the distance between, you know, exile, people who are facing exile and maybe God and their promised land. And it's like that that desert area between you and God is actually starting to blossom. Like your exodus back to God, the, the restoration of things that were lost, it's gonna be, God's going to uh, make that desert sprout. It welcome you. The desert's actually welcome you in your time of exodus back to, you know, back to God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Speaking to people who've been marginalized, people who've been wounded, people who have lost, who have experienced loss, um, it, it seems to me like it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's God telling us to strengthen, to, to strengthen one another, but it's also a message to us, like we can be strengthened. Our, our weak hands, our, 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 our feeble knees, God will be with us in our journey back to him. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. You think of all these physical maladies, like they're all, they'll all be changed. Like this is, a, this is the promise of things becoming whole again being able to see, being able to hear. Can I, can I just, yeah. enjoy, I love the, the passion that you are, uh, this, like, I'm getting all excited about this. You know, and, and as, as teachers, we know that when it's something that you connect with, it just brings out that excitement. Yes. What experiences have you had that gets you excited to study these things and gives you that personal hope? So for me, I, I, this is one of the perpetual challenges is finding hope in Christ. And I know that over the course of my life, uh, there have been practices that bring me hope. For me, the temple is a place of hope. Mm. I walk out of the temple a little bit changed, feeling like um, problems that, that I, as I saw them going into the temple, I now see them with a slightly different lens. My heart's been changed. Any thoughts, Sean? So this imagery that uh, Luke was just reading, uh, that the desert's gonna blossom as a rose, right? And, and that, that's beautiful language, but then when you actually pause and think of that imagery, and I think of the times in my life that have been wilderness-like, mm -hmm. uh, where the hope is dry, and God says, turn to me again, and it, there's, there's, there's beauty, there's growth, there's verdant, uh, you know, pastures in your future, and, and blossoms coming up uh, where things were challenging. And, and doing this, engaging with scripture and pondering it prayerfully, it actually changes me um, and, and provides that for me. That's one of the ways uh, that helps me. Can I share a quote that please just uh, that supports that? This is from um, President Patricia Holland when she said, 
There have been challenges in my life that it would have completely destroyed me had I not had the scriptures both on my bedstand and in my purse so that I could partake of them day and night at a moment's notice. And I too am moved by the idea that someone 2,700 years ago wrote something, and that's the miracle, that you can have that in your purse or you can have that on your phone and you're at school and you are alone. And somehow those words, you pull them up, they can actually be a miracle in your life. They can bring you hope. They can bring you peace in your uh, times of personal exile. You feel like you're coming home. You feel yeah. like you've got a friend there even when you're alone. I watched a teenage daughter in difficulty in high school turn, learn to turn to the scriptures. And she has today this steadiness that I, I often don't see because she has a friend in the word of God. You know, and then I love how we have that charge. Once we have that now, we've got to go spread that yeah. and we've got to go help and lift and be mindful of all those around us as we're trying to build and strengthen this kingdom. Because there are a lot of things, hearts that are broken things that need to be mended and fixed. And the Lord oftentimes is going to use us in that process uh, to help him do his work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an invitation to write down our own songs of hope, right? I mean, uh, write. When you, when you experience the divine or when you're reaching out to the divine, we should be writing so that 2,000 years from now, in so whatever this planet looks like then, a group of people can say, I read something that was written by my brother 2,000 years ago and their words spoke to me, right? Like Isaiah is doing what, what poets do. He writes things down and I'm really glad he did. And maybe there'll be future people who will be glad you did for writing down your own experiences. You know, as we're talking about Isaiah and this idea of hope, I would love to hear from you all on how the Lord has restored something that has been lost or broken in your life. Yes, please. I had lots of struggles growing up, but I have this strong feeling to this day of my mom always just teaching me to be obedient and to try to be my best and to keep going on the path that it would be okay at the end. It, it, mistakes that you can make sometimes can completely break you, but with the atonement, that's what it was for me it was completely able to heal. And at the time when I was really down, I felt like my life would have changed forever and I wouldn't be able to be who I really knew Heavenly Father wanted me to be. But through the atonement and going to the temple, like Luke was also mentioning before, it helped me and he healed me in a way that I'm a completely different person. Was there something specific that your mom did or taught you that it led you back to focusing on Jesus Christ? I feel the number one thing my mom always have done was teaching us how to be obedient. Mm. And it's really challenging sometimes because I feel like my mom had had a very challenging life, even doing everything right. But family home evening. We grown up, we had missionaries come over every Monday and we did family home evening every week. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Can I share a quote from Chiko Kasaki? Yes, please. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes. Look what she says about where she locates her hope. I testify that my Christ is my hope. He is my hope on rainy Monday mornings, my hope on dark nights, and my hope in the face of death and despair. 
I testify that the forces of life are always stronger than the forces of death. If we choose, if we even desire to choose, if we even hope for the desire to choose, we set in motion powerful forces for life that are led by Jesus Christ himself. Mm. He responds to those tender tendrils of crippled life with the force and energy that will bring them to flowering. That's Isaianic, isn't That's it? Right. That is That's really right. nice. Taking us back to gardening metaphors. This has been a wonderful conversation. And again, I'm, I'm, I always look forward to footnotes where we can dive in deeper to some of these, these chapters, but this has been a great discussion on our second topic, the Lord can restore things that are lost or broken. The Spirit taught me uh, to trust in myself, believe in myself, and that God is there for me. And um, just to dive in, and the Spirit will do the rest. I, again, I don't have to be a scholar, I don't have to understand everything that Isaiah is saying, but to dive in and let the Spirit do the rest is what I got out of it. I think that the reason that the Old Testament is so important to us is those people are just like us. And the experiences that they had, the punishments that they suffered, the lessons that they learned are exactly the same as what we learn today. The, the God of the Old Testament is the God that we deal with today, and He delivered those people, and He will deliver us. It motivated me to go home and not feel so intimidated by Isaiah and try to really understand what he's, the message behind uh, what he's trying to say. So I'm, I'm actually excited to go home and study Isaiah, not the opposite of that. Welcome to Footnotes. All right, guys. Uh, I'm going to be a little selfish. I have some questions for you guys. I'm going to take advantage of your knowledge. So um, earlier in the episode, we were talking in chapter 14, where they're talking about the fall of Lucifer and how, yes. and I had always taken that as literally meaning mm. Lucifer, and then someday we're going to see him, and I'm going to be like, ha ha, <laughs> you got nothing on me, you right. know what I mean? Yeah, so right, right. I never really uh, understood that that can be taken as kingdoms that are being represented. Anyways, uh, what do we teach me? I want to learn from why my mental thinking was off a little bit. I mean, I think one thing that's helpful, and you see this in the uh, Come Follow Me manual. The Come Follow Me manual says that um, for the most part, people today aren't the primary audience of the Old Testament prophets. Those prophets had immediate concerns they were addressing in their time and place, just as our Latter-day prophets address our immediate concerns today. So I think a starting point is that, yeah, each of these texts has an immediate uh, historical context meaning. But then with time and in different contexts as, as scripture is received and as revelation is received by prophets, maybe by Lehi or by John the Revelator or by President Nelson, um, Isaiah then can have uh, new meanings, additional meanings, additional layers so that it's not just that this was right and this was wrong, but rather you're getting uh, multiple readings of scriptures. And maybe yeah, you wanna take it from there? No, no I love that and in fact, the this is why modern prophets are so important. And this is this beautiful layering that we have as Latter-day Saints where we also have the Book of Mormon and how mm. they are understanding mm. Isaiah. We say, wow. And Nephi is overt about this. He says, I'm going to liken Isaiah because he's talking right. to the house of Israel and he's talking to the Gentiles. So he's talking to everybody. And look, this matters for us. And then we live in this Latter-day covenant context where God is renewing his covenant relationship 
and, and we've got modern prophets that are saying, look how relevant and powerful. And so the, the, the Old Testament is not the Old Testament for us. Mm-hmm. It is the, the unified testament that God works with his children across time, and it comes alive. It's not these dead, dusty words for us. These are living things, but, but they have to be reused, so to speak, and prophets help train us mm-hmm. how to do that. It's really helpful. And, and I gotta just say one more thing and then we can look at some specifics. The spirit is also helpful. Uh, one thing I, when I'm teaching Isaiah, I tell students now is we're, do, we're gonna do a lot of historical context, but don't let me rob Isaiah of its power that the spirit can actually communicate through the words. And the example I like to use is I was sitting in a meeting and one of the area authorities that was speaking talked about a time when he, was try- he had been given a job opportunity. They had built their dream home and it was in Utah and he was ready. To- and then this job opportunity came in China and he said, oh, should we move? Should we not move? And he's reading in Doctrine and Covenants and he reads a verse, you should move to the Eastern lands. And and the spirit resonated with him and that was his answer. God spoke to him through that verse. Well, contextually, that I hope we don't all read that verse that way, you know, because uh, we'll all need to move further east. Uh, but God used that verse. And so that sort of illustrates this a little bit. There is this ancient use and then there's how the spirit brings it, which is more important. Uh, they're both really important mm-hmm. for us to understand. Mm-hmm. I guess most important is what, God wants me to do with it today. But at the same time, it comes to light. I understand it so much better when I understand this original context. That that. makes a lot of sense. Really, it does help me understand, you know, because even as you were speaking, I was like, oh yeah, because I can look at this as if it is literally referring to Lucifer, that fallen angel, and I I can gain strength and say, yeah, this connects with me because it shows that I have power and control Mm. over my temptations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a really cool way to think about it. And I think the goal should be to read it in as many different ways as possible. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, the scriptures are here to bless people. People aren't here. People weren't created for scripture. Scripture was created for people, right? And so I think one of the values of learning, for example, Isaiah's historical context and learning and, and then the value of learning about Lehi's or John the Revelator or me personally you now have all these different lenses that you can bring to scripture and it's just more opportunity for scripture Mm. to speak to you, more opportunity for you to be able to draw principles and doctrines from scripture. If I read it like this is the king of Babylon, that actually can, I can draw certain principles from that that will influence my discipleship. If I think of it cosmologically, this is Lucifer, the devil. There are principles and doctrines I can draw from this. If I just throw myself into the text and it, it speaks to something that's particular to just me. There are principles and doctrines I can draw to that. It, it, it's, it's hopefully we're aiming for a richer experience by finding these additional layers. I don't know if this, this may be too old school when you had these transparencies that would have images on them that you could lay on top of another image and it would add this richness. And the two images can work separately and they're great, they, they do things, and then you put them together and it's even better, right? Yeah. Then it, it's like this new discovery. And like you said, the Lord will use that as an opportunity to give us our own personal revelation. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. through, right. through yeah. whatever context it was written, it can be personalized specifically to our situation. That's right. Yeah. And because we're a people who believes that God still communicates through the Spirit today, then God, whatever God tells me today, that trumps, you know, you might say, that, that sort of uh, over, 
Oh, but but you want the stability of scripture, so you don't do a bunch of weird stuff. You know, it's just me. <laughs> but God, God's voice bringing these scriptures mm. to life—that's what mm. you know. That's the power. You know, but yeah. but you got God's got to have something to work with. And right. the more we understand about the ancient context, the more He's got to work with. I guess. Um, okay, let's let's. Uh, I'll stop. Uh, getting excited about the, the meta understanding of Isaiah. Let, let's read some of these verses. So look how this works um, in Isaiah 14, 12 through 13. These are pretty famous verses for uh, Christian readers, uh, for uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cast down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? Now, if you've read the whole, we, we tend to just go to that verse and go, okay, cool. I know we're talking about Satan. But you read it in context and it's Babylon. Mm -hmm. And, but now Isaiah's doing a thing where this Halel bin Shahar, Shahar is the, the morning, it's like the morning star. And so um, he's, he seems to be building on some ancient mythology, not necessarily even Israelite mythology, but it's sort of like this, these surrounding views of these rebellious gods or a rebellious god, right, that, that's fallen. And so once you, Isaiah's talking about Babylon, but then he uses this language that actually you say, I'm, is he pointing actually specifically to Satan, or does he use language that then Lehi, mm. when he's reading it, he's like, well, here's how I understand this, and I, I just don't know the answer okay. to that perfectly. I just I just can't tell, right? Are you surprised as I am to find out he didn't know the answer to something? Yes. Okay. All, Good. I, don't, I actually don't believe him. I'm like, sure you do. You know. Stop <laughs> being you coy. You got it. just on. pulling our leg over well, here, Sean. So if we go to 2 Nephi 2 then, and, and then you get Lehi helping us, uh, chapter two, verse 17. And I, Lehi, according to the things which I have read, must need suppose that an angel of God, according to that which is written, had fallen from heaven, uh, wherefore he became a devil, having sought that which was evil before God. And so, I mean, he could be talking about something else that we don't have access to that he's read. Uh, that, that's certainly possible. Maybe Isaiah is actually using some other ancient, you know, it, if we could have Isaiah's library, we'd be like, oh, I see what, even better what you're doing, Isaiah. But he's probably talking about Isaiah mm -hmm. here. That seems like uh, that's what he's referring to. And, and then all of a sudden, that's probably the earliest uh, interpretation that, that we would have where it's clear someone is reading this, and in this case, it's Prophet Lehi, mm -hmm. is saying, ah, and let me teach you, Satan fell from heaven. Pre-mortal, uh, son of the morning, you know, he fell from heaven, and, and then he became Satan. Mm -hmm. and, and then you get that playing out in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, this dragon has been cast out of heaven, and this is what Luke was referring to with John the Revelator. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. You know, one, uh, one metaphor that I give students, and I would love your guys' critique of this. <laughs> uh, one, so I have this picture, I think it's in the Netherlands, of this playground that kids are playing on. So there are slides and like balance, you know, balance beams, but the materials from which these slides and balance beams and everything are crafted are old, like airplane wings mm. from so some from their air force. So as a viewer, when you're looking at these kids playing, obviously we get this is a playground. But because we're adults and we know how things work, we also see it's all it's a slide, but it's also an airplane. At one point, this was flying somewhere, and it was doing. It's been repurposed mm -hmm. for other ends, and really beautifully, in this case, peaceful ends, right? So when I'm looking at this park, 
uh, it, it occurred to me, I was like, this to me feels like the way scripture often functions, particularly uh, prophetic scripture, which is, and by prophetic scripture, I'm talking about Jewish Old Testament scripture, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, how it gets used throughout the centuries, where Isaiah is one of the most read and most cited people in both Jewish and Christian tradition. And it feels like this metaphor is working where he's given us the raw material Mm -hmm. and it's doing a particular thing. It's an airplane in Isaiah's day. And then Lehi is using that raw material and he's, but he's now, he's in a different context. He's, you know, he's, they're going to this, they're leaving what they thought was the promised land to a new promised land, right? Or John the Revelator in the context of a small marginalized group surrounded by the Roman Empire, right? And uh, and wanting to give hope to these early assemblies in Asia Minor. The, the, thing I, the reason why I like the metaphor with the slide is it actually means something more to me to see kids playing on former instruments of war, right? It's right. like the playground is like the exact opposite of war, right? It's like this is a place where you know you have peace if kids can go outside and play. So knowing the ancient, the, the older context of the materials actually informs the beauty of its present situation. You see what Luke did, it's not just an image of kids playing on the playground. If you get the history of it, then that's cool too. History's yeah. cool. And then you bring them together mm-hmm. and then it's poignant. Yeah, it's it's powerful. powerful in ways that it wouldn't have been powerful if you just took one or you just took the other. Okay, so how are we gonna grade? The analogy. He asked for a great, like, what do we think? Kill it, cut it. A plus, plus, plus. Absolutely, that was great. Let me say something more about this, um, because as Latter-day Saints, we often were trained by the Book of Mormon a lot. Mm -hmm. And in the Book of Mormon, you actually have Moroni saying, I'm talking straight to you in the latter days. I've seen you, Mm -hmm. but I do want to be careful that, that, that I don't assume Isaiah is just writing for our day. And I think that's why Luke read that from the Come, Follow Me manual. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, as we were reading earlier in um, chapter 29. Yeah. The question I had, uh, talking about the restoration, talking about a a book that is delivered to him that is not learned. As a Latter-day Saint, we immediately go to a place. Yeah. You know, we're like, oh, this is talking about the Book of Mormon. This is talking about Joseph Smith. And um, I've always been curious, when Isaiah was writing this, is he seeing Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon? Does he, like, is he writing to this audience? Because I had always been on the impression that Isaiah was specifically writing to, to his people. How do we make sense of this? Yeah. You, you can have a starting point of, well, what might this have meant here in, in eighth century or you know, seventh century uh, Israel? And then, you know, later Elder Oak says, still another meaning or fulfillment of the same prophecy seems to relate to the events attending the second coming of the Savior. Um, so multiple meanings, right? So maybe if we read it, we can see like, okay. what's the, you know, how might, what, what might this have meant anciently? And then how is it being, how has it been sort of repurposed through the lens of restoration truths and, and the gospel? Maybe I'll start and then do you want to dive in? Okay. Uh, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall uh, be unto me as Ariel. Okay, so what's happening? Uh, Just as an aside, um, I rely, I I study ancient Mediterranean religions. My area of expertise is in the New Testament. Isaiah to me seems like a foreign 
world. Like, so if you feel that way, like I feel that way too. I took graduate level courses on this and I still, at times I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I use a study Bible. And when I was reading Ah, Ariel, Ah, Ariel, I looked down at my footnotes and I see Jerusalem. Okay, so this is a prophecy about Jerusalem. Jerusalem eventually being sieged, right? And so thinking about an ancient context, right? We know that Jerusalem was sieged in the year 701, right, by the Assyrians. We know Jerusalem's gonna be sieged again in the year 600 and then 586 by the Babylonians. Then again in the Romans, right? So already you can see how an ancient reader, this might be speaking to political realities of war, of, of, of Jerusalem being attacked. Would you agree? Uh, I would, and let me just say something before yeah. you continue. I, I think sometimes a Latter-day Saint reader would read that footnote and say, but I know better, it's not Jerusalem, yes, right? Yes, right, right. He hasn't all of a sudden jumped to some other side of the world where the people he's talking to are like, oh, there's another people on the other side of the world and now you're talking to us about them? No, he's talking to the people that need a prophet in his mm-hmm. day, right? Uh, so, other things, Luke, you want to do there? I, I think I'd, tur- I'd rather turn it over to you. Okay. I mean, where I, would you? Yeah, I mean. I stole the baton from no, you. No, already, no, no. So. I, I actually was wanting to pass you the <laughs> he baton. Threw it at you. He's like, I mean, <laughs> I mean it when I say, look, I, I wrestle like I with this say stuff. That, Sean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I love it. All right, so if you skip forward to, let, let's go to verse 10. Mm. Uh, for the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. He's talking about a people in his, he's, he's accusing them of saying, you aren't paying attention to prophetic voices and so you, you're losing your prophetic voices. And what happens, if we go back actually for just a moment, there's this verse four their voices are going to be low. They're going to speak out of the ground, out of the dust of the ground. Now, of course, that's famous for Latter-day Saints because we think of the right. Book of Mormon coming mm. out of the ground. And that's beautiful and powerful, appropriate and good, right? But that's also true with ancient prophets, right? They're, they're rejecting them. They get ignored and the people are going to die. And then they're going to have this message that that was ignored, and so it, now, now we're jumping back to verse 11, sorry. The vision of all has become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. And so an ancient people could imagine this sealed document that has truths in it, but they can't access because it's closed up. Isaiah's words are sealed to you. Now, if we're gonna uh, stick with the Bible for a moment and come to medieval times when people are saying, I, you know, I don't understand this. The unlearned don't mm-hmm. understand it. The learned have done their own particular things with it. They don't. It's a, the Bible is a sealed book. Mm-hmm. Isaiah's words, I think, still today, the Book of Mormon is trying to help us, but Isaiah's words are a sealed book, and this works very much for Isaiah's words. It works for the Bible, and and it, we can see it historically occurring this way. The Bible is, uh, in particular, Isaiah's words sort of shut down mm-hmm. um, as far as how we understand them. Do you think sometimes there could be a tendency um, to assume, well, you're just making it fit? You know, you're here, you have this story with Isaiah, he's talking about this. Well, that's convenient, you know, for those that may be critical of, you know, our faith or Mm. some of the things that we believe of making our story fit the narrative that already exists, as opposed to attributing it to this big design plan. Yeah, I mean, Jump in here any minute. I'm, I'm going to think out loud for a little bit. In my mind, this, you know, the the way that uh, we as Latter-day Saints interpret Scripture and the way that Scripture's been 
interpreted for us. I mean, we believe that angels are quoting scriptures in this way. I mean, we, we believe that this is the way that angelic messengers are using these scriptures. This, I would just suggest, fits right into the sort of the history of salvation. This is the way scripture has always functioned. You read the New Testament. This is what New Testament authors are doing, right? They have these experiences with Jesus. They have experiences with the resurrected Jesus, with the Son of God. And then when they're reflecting on those experiences, when they are, uh, they are going back to uh, ancient Israelite scripture and telling the story of Jesus using the words of Old Testament scripture. They are finding Christ in the Old Testament. In, in some ways, I think it's going both ways. I mean, we can say that ancient prophets are testifying forward of Jesus, but I think we can also say that People in the times of Jesus who have encountered the Christ are also reading back into the history of, of ancient Israel and finding Christ in the past. And they're unafraid to use scripture in multiple ways. The, I think the clearest example of this is in the Gospel of Matthew, where uh, when, when Herod tries to kill uh, the, the, the infant Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the Holy Family escapes into Egypt. Matthew says, this is so that it would be fulfilled, that it, this is in fulfillment of the scripture, out of Egypt I have called my son. If you go and you read that, that is a passage in Hosea that if you read it in context, it is clearly talking about the Israelites. Out of Egypt I have called Israel. This is a celebration of God redeeming people out of out, out, of, out of Egypt, right? Redeeming mm-hmm. Israel out of Egypt, out, uh, liberating them. Matthew is, he, he sees that Christ has been liberated. He sees that Christ was saved by God. It's a miraculous sort of exodus. And he goes and he finds scripture and, and reads Christ through that scripture. And that scripture now means both to us. Hosea, mm-hmm. I read okay. it. Hosea to me is an exodus scripture. It's also the scripture where I celebrate the fact that Joseph listened to a revelation and he saved his son, right? And so for me, Isaiah 29, right. it, it, can, it's, it can be the same thing where, and I, and I feel like angels are giving us the right to do that because they're reading the scripture in this way. They're, again, it's not about limiting us to say, look, only read this in its eighth century context that scholars fight about anyway, right? Yeah. It's saying, look, this can mean multiple things. And there was a sealed book. There was a sealed portion that a Nephite prophet mm-hmm. sealed up. And... Uh, Let's use this scripture and, and, and read it in ways that uh, inform our understanding of how the restoration unfolded. Well, and I love everything that Luke said, and, and I would add, when you get Nephi's, when you get 2 Nephi 27, which is Isaiah 29, there's actually a lot of additional material. And I, uh, yeah. I don't know if that is, uh, Nephi's got Isaiah's original material, although there's portions of it, and I think most would agree with me, this seems like Nephi's prophetic adaptation of Isaiah. Mm. Now let me show how this applies. And lo and behold, it applies really beautifully. As Luke was saying, there is a sealed book that was buried in the ground and that Mm. speaks out of the ground. And if you look uh, at, you keep, keep going in verses 13 and 14, and God in Isaiah's day, there's a people who are ignoring prophets, and look what God says. Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as the people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. So they're rejecting me. And they mm-hmm. were doing it in Isaiah's day, and here's a day where they're doing it again, but claiming that they're not, right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder. And what's that going to look like? The book that was sealed will be opened, and knowledge that was 
uh, unavailable will become available and we will rejoice in the message of ancient prophets and they will have meaning for us in last days. And here's where the richness of the combined message, the Bible is unsealed in the last days by the unlearned prophet Joseph Smith and others, by the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the Book of Mormon is unsealed and it actually unlocks the Bible, right? And they work together to confirm this latter-day story that we are living. We are living the words of Isaiah come alive in the latter days as Luke was saying through Joseph Smith. And I don't have to use Isaiah 29. Uh, to prove that the Book of Mormon is true because the Book of Mormon is its, you know, it proves itself yeah. and, and what it does in my life. And Isaiah coming alive for me, that's its own proof. I don't need to sort of say, ah, look, I can prove mm -hmm. that this, inter that Isaiah saw the Book of Mormon. Whether Isaiah saw the Book of Mormon or not, the Book of Mormon is alive and it bears fruit in my life. So does the Bible. The way you guys talk about the Book of Isaiah like it's amazing, it really is. It's inspiring to see the, the the work, the dedication. I would love to hear from you on either how did that start? What generated this passion to study not only Isaiah but ancient scripture, and how have you used that to shape your life? Hmm. I am so impressed with this body of literature that's able to be hopeful in a time that seems so hopeless. I love Isaiah because it, unash like it unashamedly, unapologetically promises God is with you. But then it also unashamedly, unapologetically says, and you be with each other. God is pleased with the people who do what he does, which is bring hope to people. Thank you. Sean. So oh, my, my love for Isaiah has continued to increase, honestly, year by year. I have come to understand the nature of God more through I, the teachings of Isaiah and the teachings of Joseph Smith. Um, they have encouraged me to approach God, that God would be willing to accept me and reveal himself uh, to me in his own way. He really has pushed me to recognize those who are downtrodden to reach out better. And Luke was talking about that earlier. That, that message matters to me. And because I teach Isaiah so often, I, I'm, I see it a lot. And I think, oh, I got to change. I got to repent. You know? So there have been a, a number of ways reading and studying Isaiah have changed me, I would say. Well, thank you so much for uh, your comments and your insights. This has been a great discussion as we've talked about our two topics for this episode, the wicked kingdoms of this world and their downfall, and the Lord can restore things that are lost or broken. And thank all of you for joining us. And we wanna again invite you to follow any promptings or feelings that you have received from the Holy Ghost as you've watched this episode. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.